Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Jamie Wheel, Executive Director of the Flow Genome Project. Hey, Jim. Good to be here, my man. Hey, yeah, good to have you here, Jamie. Jamie's an expert in the neurophysiology of human performance. His work combines a background in expeditionary education, wilderness medicine, and surf rescue. If it wasn't in Me Too time, I'd probably make a cool comment about that, but we'll just move on over that. <laughs> Play through. <laughs> he has over a decade of advising high growth companies on strategy, execution, and leadership. On execution, I know some of that leadership needs executing. Goddamn right. <laughs> Jamie's coaching ranges from Fortune 500 companies like Cisco, Google, and Nike to the Navy War College and Red Bull. With Steve Kotler, he wrote the best selling book, Stealing Fire How Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs, Maverick Scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work. Leads a team of the world's top scientists, athletes, and artists dedicated to mapping the genome of a peak performance state known as flow. And so you've like got to hang out with the SEALs, is that right? Yeah, we have had got to spend some time with uh, some of those guys and some of the guys in the UK as well. Uh, what was that like? Well, I mean, I think just, you know, humbling and, and fascinating to see people that have honed anything, uh, whether it's elite uh, extreme athletes uh, or uh, spec ops guys, is just the degree of no-nonsense precision in their world, worldview, mode of, of interacting, situational awareness, choice making, all of it. They're just fascinating specimens of, 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 of the keen edge of human performance. Yeah, I've met some uh, you know, very elite military guys, and yet, indeed, they are all that. The thing that was interesting is they are not intellectual in the slightest, at least the enlisted men that I've met. Mm. Well, you know, and that's interesting because I, I think, I mean, A, obviously, massive, massive organization and different communities within it. Within it. Um, but I, I have found that the more senior in the strategic uh, special operations domain, the more humble, the more self-effacing, the more curious, the more lateral and divergent in their thinking. I mean, I, I experienced some very disciplined but voracious learners at that level of the organizations. Yeah, of course, the higher level in the officer corps, I would expect to see that. Uh, that makes sense. I'm continually blown away by the thoughtfulness, actually, the depth and the thoughtfulness of leadership at, 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 of those commands. That's good to hear, actually, because they are the sharp point of the spear protecting us all, right? Yeah, at the whim of an executive department, you know, uh, so. that it's somewhat mercurial at best, right? Yeah. A lot of your work deals with individuals and groups achieving the state of flow. Flow was, I think, first defined by a guy, I can't even pronounce his name, Mahalia, Mickley Mahaley or some damn thing. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you start by telling us what is flow? Mm. Well, I mean, it's just a subset of a whole broad category of what you could call non-ordinary states. We might as well even call these specific ones benign non-ordinary states. So, so not schizophrenia, not dissociation, not something like that, but actually ones of uh, peak, peak um, information, uh, ape, you know, perception, and, uh, and hyper-efficient uh, action from there. So it's a kind of neurochemical profile. It has a neurophysiological profile. It also has a psychological experiential profile and then also kind of an operational range of application of what to do with it when you're in it. 
Interesting. I've fallen into flow states on several occasions in my life, and they have been extraordinarily productive, like, uh, you know, 10x uh, the normal horsepower. Quite remarkable. Straight up happy place. But at some point, tiring. I remember I fell into one that lasted six weeks for no apparent reason. I was writing a business plan, and I just blew through it in about two weeks. And I had so much mental firepower that a friend of mine just started uh, lining up like company CEOs, you know, chief technology officers, and just had them march by me and sit down for 10 minutes, tell them, tell me their problem. And I'd give them the perfect answer every time. It was uh, remarkably uncanny. But <laughs> And then did you like sleep for a month? What happened after? It's funny. I can actually feel myself drop out of it over a period of about two hours. First, one step down from, you know, immaculate to just really, really, really good. And then another two hours later, back to normal. And I think I did sleep for a day, but... But it was pretty cool. Uh, I'd also note to our people that on the website for your Flow Genome Project, there's a thing called the Flow Profile. We'll put a link up on our site. People go take a look at it, take a test. And I took the test. Oh, yeah. What did you come out of? It has a hard charger. Oh, sweet. Which was mostly right, but it was wrong about me being interested in physically active sports. I'm way too physically lazy for those, but I do like to do crazy shit and take risks like legally manufacturing homemade explosives, shooting large high capacity guns, high stakes poker, or doing ridiculous things on ATVs that might not be all that wise. So as long as they don't require breaking a sweat, I'm all in. Dude, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's all, all the risk, none of the calorie burn. It's perfect. Exactly, exactly right? So, yeah, I guess I fit a sort of a hard charger, a non-sweat variety. But, yeah, it was kind of fun. I advise people to take it. You also say on your website, we take a rigorous, multidisciplinary, and a supremely practical approach to the science and research of peak performance. At our core, we're flow hackers. Well, I mean, I would say that's probably an anachronism and, and, and lazy copy on, on, on a marketing team. I didn't have full oversight over. So I, I would ne- not never actually uh, position what we do as that. However, the understanding that at a neurophysiological level, consciousness is programmable is a key insight. And then you start reverse engineering higher states of perspectival awareness, not by trying to talk our way there through, you know, Zen Cohen's or contemplative prayer or, you know, or, or psychoanalysis, but actually just to boost the body brain into those, those optimized zones and then see what your information feeds and sense making feel like. Yeah, and I liked, you know, frankly, uh, it wasn't terrible for marketing bullshit. <laughs> you know, I like multiply disciplinary and particularly I like supremely practical, right? For sure that. For sure that. Yeah, because too much in this space, as you know, is just like unholy horseshit, right? No, I mean, I mean that—that's what I appreciate about mountains and oceans and and gravity sports is that is that that you know it, it, gravity does not lie, and it's a no bullshit teacher. And, and then big wild environments, you know, drop you to your knees in, in the vastness and scale and the requirement of having your wits about you. Um, I find them to be very, very clean teachers. Yep. Uh, reality is a very excellent teacher. <laughs> Indeed. 16 feet per second per second, bitches. <laughs> exactly. That's gravity, right? Yeah. In a uh, Harvard Business Review article by Steve Kotler, you were quoted as saying, researchers describe flow as a source code of intrinsic motivation. Once an experience produces the state, we'll go to extraordinary lengths to get more of it. I recently said something similar about myself on the Zion 2.0 podcast. We were talking what to do about the zillionaires. Is it time for the guillotines? Mm. Mm. And mm, 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 
And I distinguish between those driven by extrinsic motivations, you know, big houses, flashy bimbos, private jets and the like, and those driven by intrinsic motivations, you know, desire to create or to win or to explore. You know, I see flow as a possible way to those intrinsic states, but not necessarily required. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you could make a case that it's really just the, you know, super ergonomic version of that general directional pursuit of intrinsic um, satisfaction. It's the pathway, you know. Yeah, or it's a way to do it better, right? Or at least the slip and slide. Yeah, I mean, if you get that sucker going, right, it'll it'll speed you to your destination in the most enjoyable way in the least amount of time. Yeah, but on the other hand, I would also like to say to, to warn people that it could become a hoped for panacea. Uh, you know, as I said, I've fallen into flow states several times at, and often at exactly the right time, but sometimes not. For instance, in 2011, after eight years of research, I sat down to write a long document that was the digest of this research. Mm. And in fact, this document eventually gave rise to Game B. Oh, Nick. Nick, Nick. If Game B succeeds, this document was uh, probably the most important thing I ever wrote. Oh, dude, listen, let, let, let's jump over to Game B stuff and future culture architecture and what, what are the perils of non-ordinary states as they get operationalized, commodified, and weaponized. And Let me finish this, then we'll hop there. How's that sound? Uh, so anyway, oh, dude, I, I, perfect. Because this is important, uh, which is uh, I started three times to write this document and you know hacked at it for two or three days, and the flow state didn't come. And so I just said, fuck it. And, you know, uh, let it go for another couple of months, did some more research. Finally, the third time it was a period after six months of wanting to write this thing. I just said to myself, flow or not, I'm just going to, you know, hack, yeah. hack through this thing. I just muscled it. Right. And uh, it was good enough, though. It was harder work and it took longer than if I'd been in a flow state. So I would, yeah. I would just put out the warning. Uh, yes, it's great when you do get the flow state to boost your power. But if you don't, that doesn't mean you can't still do good work. Yeah, the one the one I had to I, I agree completely because uh, I had to override that in my brain too of like waiting to craft the perfect verse, and then I started thinking of myself much more like a carpenter. And there's like rough framing, you know, and then there's finish framing, and then fine detailing, and like and know which phase, and then there's caulk and paint, you know, like know which phase you're at, and 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 sometimes just if you're not, if you are having to just grind it out to just be like I am just rough planking some shit right now. Yeah, it'll all change later. Yeah, exactly, and you know, and it may take three times as long, but you'll just get it done. And, you know, of course, it would be great if we had flow state more or less on demand. In your view, is that something that's possible? Um, I mean, the th I mean, sort of yes and, right? I mean, can you, you know, as we get more skillful at all of these, you know, neurophys inter interventions, right? So we really are just kind of like truly dialing or programming states of awareness uh, for different conditions. And they're already doing that in one-offs and experiments and specific technical conditions. But let's just say for all of us, then like we still have the, the human existential questions and we still have both grace and grief in life. So like that shit is table stakes and you have to be able to metabolize those things regardless of what turbo button you, you got installed. Yeah, no doubt about that. You know, to that point, early on, let's, let's switch now to your book, uh, Stealing Fire, which I read a long time ago. You actually gave me a copy of it. Oh, nice. And I read it when we had coffee in Austin a few years ago. And I uh, reread it over the last week or so, as I typically do. Thank you. Thank you. For my episodes so I can speak uh, cogently about people's work, right? Not just bullshit my way through. One of the things I loved about your book, uh, like on page two, you talked about the Eleusinian mysteries, right? 
Yeah. Eleusian Mysteries. I don't know how the hell you spell, pronounce that, but something like that. Anyway, I, yeah. it was something I did a bunch of research on 20 years ago, and 20 years ago there wasn't much. Tell us what you know about them and how they were so central in you know, grounding, essentially, the meaning of life for people back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it was a sort of uh, like a nine-day ritual. People from all different castes of society could could participate. It involved sort of theater, pantomime, archetypal roles, potentially even, and this was sort of like never disclosed, super secret, super secret, you know, some kind of, I don't know whether it was like a coffin-like death rebirth, but some form of fairly profound initiatory Shazam experience, kind of like Michael Douglas in the game, you know, like something of that level juju. And then, you know, highly likely to be involving the intoxicating sacrament of Kaikion, you know, with, with, you know, that they, their instructions were to dilute one to 10 with wine and that, um, Alcibiades, right. Ripped off on pain of death, took it and threw a banging house party with it. So you're like, okay, so we know it's super strong and a little ton of fun. Right. And, and that kicks off the Western ecstatic, uh, tradition, I think. And uh, many of the great thinkers of both Greece and Rome were initiates, including Plato and I believe Aristotle as well. Yeah, although, you know, I'm not sure about Aristotle. And my yeah, I'm not sure it, either, actually. Right? I think it was Socrates and Plato. But, you know, but Aristotle, I think, this is my gorilla thesis, which is I think that Aristotle couldn't hold his brew. So he might have tried Kaikyung. Because think about their philosophies, right? I mean, Plato was like, there's this world of forms. There's this super cool information layer. You can launch up there. Everything is perfection. You can manifest that down here on the, on the lounge. And Aristotle is like, the only stuff that's real is what I can touch, taste, see, or grab and measure, right? And we got the Aristotle telian branch of like the the tripper who couldn't hang and that became the, the modern western scientific tradition that's a really interesting theory i like that though, though i will put my cards on the table and say uh, hey you know on that big fork platonic or aristotelian i go into aristotelian every time right Oh, nice. I, I think I think I'm like a, a vestigial Pythagorean by mistake. I think that like it's taken me a, this long to like try and track down all the threads and be like, you know what? I think that's that's the main chord, like lineage chord that I feel most affinity for. Do you hate beans? Do I hate beans? You know, I'm not super keen. I must say. I mean, even some like hopped up fat back pork and beans, you know, from Texas, I could have a tablespoonful and then I'm good. Well, you may be a Pythagorean because people don't know that. That was the number one belief of the Pythagoreans that beans were evil. Mm, yeah, well, you never know. You never know. You, you, you bunk with someone. Um, yeah, I mean, their, their whole thing of like gymnastics, physiology, mu- the music of the spheres, the, the, the interrelationship between uh, geometries, number, um, and, and chords, you know, like they were way into it. They were into wrestling and philosophy. They had a highly embodied kinetic mystic tradition, mystery school, basically. I wish we knew more about them. Yeah, they are. All those pre-Socratics were, uh, was Pythagoras pre-Socratic? Yeah. He was the OG, man. He was the absolute kicker to the whole thing. I wish I'd learned about more about him earlier, but I just thought it was his triangles and shit. Cool. Yeah, so, you know, that's, of course, you learn in school. Back to the seals a little bit. One of the things you talk about in the book, and I think elsewhere, is something you call dynamic subordination, yeah. where leadership is fluid, defined by conditions. I sometimes call this role-based leadership rather than position-based leadership. And to my mind, that's something that's very game B. In fact, that Zion 2.0 podcast the uh, other day, I said something like this. Natural re- leaders will arise, soft role-based leaders rather than position-based leaders. Someone says, I'm the president of game B. I think everyone's going to laugh and say, bullshit. You're not game B. You're a fucking asshole. 
right? <laughs> so anyway, you know, tell us more about dynamic subordination and leadership that changes as the need arises. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, pretty much the key is, is just that any form of structural hierarchy uh, either is set aside or, or non-existent in the first place um, for who is sensing, thinking, feeling, perceiving, and then acting with the, the, you know, the most information closest to real-time emergence. Like that person has literally become the tip of the spear. And so there's a flock follow-on effect of, of opposing action. So there's a sort of degree of coding. It's not like, well, he just made something up. Now, what do I do? And you end up with, you know, like the hokey pokey or something. It's, it's disciplined formation flying. Um, and action. And so that allows them to basically offload into the, you know, the logic of the algorithm, right? They've encoded a kinetic battle plan and now they're all acting it out, moving through sp time and space uh, in synchronized coordination, but also real time adaptation to novelty on the ground. And yet somehow keeping that coherent. I mean, it's, it, you know, game five NBA finals, no look passes and alley-oop dunks, you know, like that's another one. Is there any way for anything other than ultra elite people who've spent 20,000 hours practicing to achieve that, you think? I mean, yes. You know, I, I think, um, you know, macrame and ketamine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and Robert's your mother's brother. I mean, you know, the, the point is that um, I think there's a ton of ways in. And actually, in our research, I think we have over, I don't know how many, maybe 20,000, 30,000, maybe more um, psychographs of, of people's flow profiles. And I think it was 47, 48% um, actually tested deep thinkers so that the, their way in is actually um, more contemplative, imaginal, creative, intellectual. Um, that whole realm of sort of interiority is where they find their, their pathway through. So it does not need to be flashbang and external. It's just those are often the easiest examples because what they're doing is, is made visible versus someone sitting at a desk or a computer or a, or a loom. That's interesting. You know, from the earliest days of Game B thinking, certainly been uh, something that we thought ought to be part of the foundational code of Game B, the deep code, so to speak, that... Mm -hmm. That there, there are no names in boxes on charts. If there are hierarchies, they arise very for a very brief time for a specific purpose and then disappear again as soon as the need is gone. And I mean, that literally might be hours, right? And it sounds like that's what some of these elite guys have been able to achieve. And well, yeah, but but it's also way harder than it looks in the sense of it's all it's everything they had to say no to to create the space for that to emerge. Like that's where the the, the battle is won and lost, you know. So it's the no corner offices, no special you know exec team meetings with the same ten people who are asked to present, and everybody else are like sort of out in the hallways with their heads down, you know, like constantly changing things up. I mean, they didn't they they grew beards, they didn't wear dress uniforms, they barely and, and often didn't salute um, commanding officers, the, the chief petty officers ran the ship. The guys from Annapolis were, you know, with respected apprentices, like they were on a rotation, you know, they weren't lifers. Like there's a whole like ecosystem of favoring and honoring uh, experience and actual commitments in time versus the externalized hierarchies they could fall back on, you know? I love it. And as you point out, you know, preserving that space is hard, right? Because unfortunately, in our modern world, particularly military guys, you know, they're, everyone's trained to think that the way you get ahead in life is moving your name from one box to another up some chart. Yeah, yeah. Although I would say that those guys are probably more um, internally motivated than, than most, you know, <laughs> like that is embracing the suck uh, in service of a very, a very rare 
a very rare sense of satisfaction, I think. Yeah, it's true that they are not into, uh, you know, the big houses and the flashy cars, because while these days a military officer is paid a decent middle class income, you ain't getting rich that way and you're putting your life on the line. So you're right. It's got to be a different set of motivations than the people who climb the climb the tree in corporate America. You know, something that elicited from me when I, when I saw that was remembering the book Hierarchy in the Forest by Chris Boehm anthropologist who has written an extraordinary book about how hunter-gatherers managed to defeat the tendency to hierarchy that's probably in our genes. If we look at our close relatives, both chimps and bonobos, there's really rigid and really vicious uh, hierarchies. They're different in the two species, but they're very rigid. Hunter-gatherers apparently had no such thing. And what they did once they invented weapons is they there was apparently, and this was worldwide, there was a commitment to take down big men who tried to usurp positions. And, you know, the ability to have spears and bows and arrows meant that, you know, two betas could kill one alpha without any problem. But I mean, doesn't that seem conjectural as all get out? Like how on earth were they starting to infer kinship structures and, and big man theory? I read the book. Did, do, they, do they make a good case? Uh, I think so. I really do. The one best evidence we have are existing hunter-gatherer peoples, and he surveys a whole bunch of them and then looks at statistics on various attributes of other archaeological societies. He goes into the mm. genetics of both bonobos and uh, chimps. It's an amazing book, Hierarchy in the Forest. I uh, would strongly recommend how our ancestors developed an immune system to big men. And something we obviously lost about 12,000 years ago with the rise of agriculture, then the state. Mm, I wonder. I mean, I honestly, I truly don't know. And I mean, my, my grad work was in sort of like neuroanthropology and millenarian movements and a lot of proto-European contact. And that, I mean, that is, is such a fascinating inquiry. And I'm also just, you know, like not sure how precise we can get about stuff that's that old as far as cultural artifacts and upstreaming, like going to present day, you know, um, intact, nominally intact, although not, um, you know, indigenous communities now is a, is a wonky game um, of backcasting what it might've been way back when. And we also know it's, there's some weird selection effects going on. The last few are probably different than mainstream 20,000 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is amazing how far we've come, how fast. A little staggering, kind of spooky, but I mean, holy shit, these little naked monkeys with clothes, man. Exactly. And even more so in the last, you know, 300 years or so, it's just like, what the hell? We're going straight up. And well, whether that'll kill us or not, is another question. Well, we, we found an accidental stash of fossilized sunlight. So we basically just, un in, in, the, in the Petro era, we've just unlocked millions of years of loaded starlight and have been just spraying it all around the world. It's been a good ride. And, and probably there's enough of it to let us get to the next level, which is uh, some combination of solar and nuclear and wind, et cetera. That windfall of petrified dinosaurs or whatever seems like it, if we're not stupid, is big enough for us to get to the other side where we won't need it anymore. That would be rad. That would be cool. Now, let's go back to something that has big bearings on, again, how to think about game B and how to think about what comes next in terms of a society. One of the things you talk a lot about with respect to the SEALs, but you also talk about with respect to some MBA students, is that there seems to be a very narrow selection, keyhole type selection for these kinds of groups in terms of leadership. The number that are filtered out are astronomical. And so again, I'll come back to the fact, do you think these skills and types are inherently rare or 
is it that our society has been such that not many have been made, maybe in a better society, we can build more people that are capable of this position-based dynamic subordination. Yeah, I mean, my sense is, because I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this lately in conversations with Jordan and Daniel and Benita and, and, and others, and um, my sense is there's two different value systems at play. So if you look for like, hey, really dropping into high, hyper-coordinated group flow is a very rare specific task with tons of attrition and tons of overtraining required to bring it about in most even elite populations, then the question becomes, how do we do this communally? How do we do this where everybody's involved? How do we do this where everybody's on the bus and there's a commitment that nobody gets dropped and coordinating that is often a progressive lefty shit show, you know, by any other term. And, and they never get off the ground. So there are these two competing poles of value sets. One is the extrinsic value. Can you do the thing? And if you're a SEAL, if you're a pro basketball player, if you're, if you're, you know, Miles Davis's drummer, you know, you either know how to swing or you don't and they get someone who can. So that's, that's pure extrinsic value system. But then on the other side, like we're a community, we're an organization, this, you know, consensus, having everybody's voice, having diversity, all having inclusion, having all those things are things we really value. Then it can often be really hard to get off the ground. So the question is, is, is there the both end, right, of coherence, which, which would be balancing those two polarities in the sense, and this is like uh, Laszlo Bach at Google and, and you know, the, um, in fact, Mike Gervais, uh, our buddy who's the, the performance psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks, right, that they've done the same thing and won Super Bowls that way. But it's a, cr- a culture of safety, a culture of risk taking, a culture where, where intrinsic value is affirmed and everybody actually feels it in their nervous systems. And at the same time, there's a starting 11 on any given Sunday. And, and we also hold that, that capacity. That plus dynamic subordination feels like a sort of potential provisional set of like, you know, guidelines or, or protocols for kind of game B leadership in dynamic conditions. Yeah, the, you mentioned, interesting, the lefty shit show, right? You know, these days I actually espouse a fair amount of lefty progressive shit when I can't get my game B right now, goddammit, right? Because it's better than the alternative. On the other hand, I'm not impressed at all with the uh, quality of human functioning over in that space. <laughs> in particular, <laughs> uh, you're laughing your ass off, I can tell you, all right? Totally am. Yeah, totally. Yeah, keep in mind, I'm a former Goldwater Republican. Fuck, longtime member of the NRA, huge gun collection. I still like hunting fish. Yeah, you know? Get off my lawn, you pesky kids. Goddamn kids, fuck you, right? <laughs> but anyway, one particular capability I was really been wondering about when I, when I thought about I was going to talk to you, I was like, got to ask this question. Can courage be taught? That, you know, physical courage, emotional courage, social courage. Because that's what I see missing so often amongst the uh, screwball left. Mm, balls and backbone. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need balls, but you certainly need backbone. Well, I mean, I mean, ovaries, huevos, like just the, the fortitude. Yeah, exactly. It's the thing. Can it be taught? I had a conversation with actually a, uh, a commander of the SAS who's just come off to lead the Center for uh, Army Leadership at, at uh, Sandhurst uh, in England. And, and we had that conversation over dinner. And it was like, you know, because he's like, hey, we take, you know, we take 18-year-old lads from the East End or from Glasgow, lousy social systems, poor role models. And in six months, we train them to be able to legally take another person's life. Like that is a tremendous responsibility and imperative. And they held that so, so strongly that they actually guide a majority of those young men through that. Um, and at the same time, even though I, you know, my whole career is in learning and, and development and training, 
I kind of think that you either have an unbendable integrity or you don't. Um, and then if you find those folks, that's the nature part. And then you nurture the hell out of those who have that ineffable core quality. And I know that sounds essentialist, reductionist, whatever, but you sort of like, I've never, like the seals have that, that bell that they ring at buds if you want to quit, right? So there's the brass bell up on the pad and they're always being taunted and baited and encouraged to go out there and just ring the fucking thing and it'll all be over. And then when they do somewhere in the last decade, they started allowing guys a second crack. Um, like, Hey, you've been training your whole life for this. I know this is a big dream. If you want to go back in, you can. And, and, fascinatingly, not one who's ever rung the bell once uh, ever makes it through buds. Interesting. <laughs> where, the, where, where the crease is, they will fold again. You use the word integrity, which is one of Jordan's absolutely favorite and probably now foundational words for game B. And if, uh, you know, your sense is integrity can't be made, uh, that means at least for a while till we start getting into child rearing practices and education, game B is going to have to be pretty selective. Well, here's the thing, though. It can be modeled and it can be entrained and it can be encouraged and supported. You can create conditions by which um, we drop into resonance and we start actually creating cascades of, you know, verbal and nonverbal learned um, imitated observed behaviors. Does that include integrity? I don't know. I honest to God don't know. Cause then we're getting into a level of like psychological modeling that I just don't feel comfortable with in the sense of like, I don't know, um, is there an essentialist soul based unique self or are we just neurons, habits, patterns, and foggy memories? And the answer is probably some of both. And that part that we think of that's real is actually a resonance back from our social group. That's why I mentioned, you know, once game B is far enough along that it has game B child rearing for infants, mm -hmm. very young children and game B education for older kids. I suspect even if integrity is hard to get inculcated, if you're able to start young, you can probably in inculcate it in most, if not quite everybody. Oh, that's been the wishing well fantasy of every single utopian movement ever, you know, and then you try raising goddamn kids and you realize it's way trickier than it looks. That is true. Here I am <laughs> violating Rutt's no, no new man hypothesis, right? But uh, so, it's confounding. Yeah, so we actually have a, an empirical question. Is the core capability integrity found in everybody or can it be nurtured in everybody from adulthood onward? If the answer is yes fine. If the answer is no, then game B has to have a fairly tight funnel to only bring in people who are in integrity as adults and try to build. Yes. That file that one under absolutely. Yep. And I don't know if we know the answer to that yet, but I, th I do agree with Jordan that integrity or what we used to call honesty and good faith. I think his concept of integrity now is a little broader is absolutely the bedrock on which game B has to be built. And then, you know, if it turns out that it is that we do have to be selective, then the next question is, can we, without mm -hmm. turning into utopian assholes, provide a culture that a much higher percentage of the next generation that comes up in the proto game B culture have in, as their foundation integrity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and the devils are in those deets. So, um, the question is how to, how to enforce it. Now, what I wonder is, it sounds like, yeah, you, you, if you're doing a sort of decentralized organization, there is that, uh, that also is a pole of the decentralized part and the organized part. And, you know, do you go like um, articles of confederation and the, and the loose confederation of, of early colonies and, but you cement it with an, a contemporary Lucinian mystery. So you, you get higher coherence with looser governance 
than we were able to pull off the first time around. Yeah. Well, is that what you're? Is that the kind of thing you're imagining? I mean, I mean. Yeah, I, something like that. In fact, the term I try to have been trying to get out into the world a little bit. What I call coherent pluralism, which is there is a core, really strong coherence, and maybe it is something completely subjective, like a mystery, or maybe it's a series of doctrines like the founding fathers. But this is the key: is it's not too all-encompassing, so it leaves room for lots of variety. So, you know, for instance, if you want to believe in one of the old hoary religions, go right ahead, right? That Let's say that's not incorporated within the domain of the coherent. And outside the domain of the coherent, I would say I would be a rabid Madisonian Jeffersonian, which is do what you will, so long as you don't violate the core. And that sounds Crowleyan more, more than Jeffersonian, but you know, like, but I, but I respect your sass. Ah, yeah. Do what thou wilt. And it harm none, do what thou wilt. That is the law of love under will. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it strikes me that if we look, you know, just in a caricature version of our left and our right today, you know, the right wants to give a very long list of prescriptions of what thou shalt do and thou shalt not do, you know, very controlling. A lot of it pulled over bodily from the Old Testament. They forget about the New Testament. On the other hand, the left is loose and loose. (laughs) decadent and, you know, lacking in strong values, right? And so it strikes me that the right answer is something in between, which is we are going to be a society of values. And here they are, God damn it, right? If you don't want to adhere to the values, the relatively tight core values of Game B, get the hell out. Uh, On the other hand, Game B needs to be self-policed to make sure it doesn't become a utopian nightmare where every single thing is specified down to the nth degree, like a lot of these creepy ass cults that well, that we see out in California and what have you. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Yeah. That was, that was, a, that was a Goldwater era rant. That was perfect. I mean, you know, the, the, the left's actually become a good bit more pious. So they're, they're not, they're not nearly as loose as they used to be. Um, and some, and some are really quite, quite self-serious. And then the right, you know, you've got the super alt-right burn it all down folks that are literally outflanking like Eric Trump Jr., and are flaming, like like booing him off stages because they think he's a race traitor. They're not going far enough out. So we're getting a, a fragmentation on a fragmentation and the sort of centrists of each camp have been completely outmoded by the bomb throwers on either side. But probably not outnumbered. That's the important thing, right? Mm. And these jackasses on both sides, fuck them basically, right? Well, I, mean, I, I think there's an important thing. It's almost like we're into like an upside down sorting hat, you know, because... It's no longer that you're necessarily. I mean, we've we've got we've got, I think we've got uh, a split on a uh, on a fifty fifty. So we've got quarters, and and the central quarters are nominally, no matter how corrupt and entrenched and you know rent seeking like stitch ups, uh, the centrists are nonetheless still ascribing to a version of the. Hamiltonian, Jeffersonian, infinite game of the American experiment, right? They are agreeing to kind of give back the ball after they've, after they've won and not break the rules, et cetera, et cetera. But the folks on either side are like, fuck the infinite game. That's the 300 years of the French Enlightenment to, to NAFTA. Fuck it. We're burning it all down. And those folks want to go back to very finite games, identity, political, tribal, right? Faction and, and, and um, vendetta driven almost. Grievance driven, driven, and, th- and th- that that's the sorting ad. So it's like if you're in on perpetuating the infinite game in the spirit of Lincoln and Kennedy and Obama and whomever, 
right? Um, and, you know, and Churchill, back, you know, that stands against fascism, like the Western tradition to now through here, yeah. like let's dust that fucker off and stand it back up and, and double, triple, quadruple down on the premise. Because if we don't, and it goes Mad Max feudal, that takes an awful long time on a world to, ha- to rebuild from. Yeah, and you said it in passing. To my mind, this is the other critical one. We must fight to preserve the Enlightenment. Now, yes, the Enlightenment was full of the bigotries of its age, but it made such a difference in the transition from essentially the past, the world dominated by superstition with no ability to tell truth from bullshit, to a world where we developed a mechanism where we can actually find incrementally and never perfectly movement towards what is actually true. And we have, you know, the idiot postmodernists on the left. We have the rigid reactionaries on the right, both of which want to dethrone the Enlightenment for God knows what on the left. And, you know, some on the right are explicitly saying they want to return to a medievalist perspective. Where's Bill Buckley when you need him? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yep. You know, anywhere from Hubert Humphrey to Bill Buckley, they were all decent folks, actually. We, we, we saw that there was a, a show, I think it was the... Um, McNeil Lehrer, maybe, but it was oh, yeah. basically, it, it was Tim Leary and Bill Buckley having a discussion and, and Leary's in his full like muslin smock with the mala beads, the whole bit. And the level of discourse was so high, the engagement, the witty banter, the, 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 the it was like watching two swordsmen engage in like a foiling duel. It, it was, it was beautiful. You're like, oh my God, what's happened to civic discourse. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, and people respected each other. You, know, you can't imagine people in that time further apart than Uncle Tim and, and Will, Will Buckley. So we only got a few minutes here. I got a whole bunches of notes, things I wanted to cover. So I'm going to give you a choice. Two different branches. One are, are the, uh, you know, the three forms of ecstasis. Mm-hmm. Selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, effortlessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's there. It is. Or the four forces: psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology. You know, I mean, we can talk about this stuff, but this is sort of a couple of years in the rearview mirror from the things that we're actively thinking about now. It all builds on it, hundred percent. All right, fuck the fuck the past. Then let's go. What are you thinking about right now? Well, I mean, how about this? The, the notion that ecstatic technologies, like in, instantly if I laid out, here's the three pitfalls as we gain access to state-changing technologies, insights, experiences, you know, ex- and, and culture, right? And the challenges were uh, threefold. One was weaponization. The other was commercialization. And then the third was sort of hedonization. You know, they're the getting hijacked by our own lizard brain impulses. Um, and then as we see that playing forward now, right, into everything from the psychedelic renaissance and the big move of venture capital and, and IP protections and patents and basically the full weight of the market economy um, piling into psychedelic therapies as they're getting ready to launch. And that's creating all sorts of ripples and sort of d- disturbances in the extended professional and research networks. Uh, all the way down to the therapeutic communities. That's one. Uh, DARPA investing in denaturing psilocybin, ketamine, and uh, MDMA. So there's literally a modern-day soma, and not the good kind, the brave new world kind. And then you have the excesses and the delusion loops and the dissociation and the spiritual bypassing of the sort of transformational culture scene, which is nominally the ones who are the sort of um, often the spokespeople for any form of um, progressive new vision for what's coming, um, but very few of them have their feet in the ground. So, so watching those trends, 
and paying attention to those three things. And then, you know, obviously throw in retina tracking and full, full big data biometric assessment into neuromarketing in the commodification space, you know? So that's sort of the landscape and it's unfolding in real time as we're all, as it intersects also with, you know, whatever, whatever your level of existential risk awareness and assessment might be. Let's jump into one of them, because this was actually, in my opinion, what killed Game B 1.0 back in 2013. And it's a term which I only heard about two weeks ago for the first time, a spiritual bypass. Oh, good God. Yes, it's a thing. It's a thing. And uh, you know, to put my, uh, with my scientist realist hat on, you know, which is what I basically am. In fact, again, I think I uh, denounce this in using different words in a essay I wrote called In Search of the Fifth Attractor, which I have on media which you know first talks about things with light game B in complex systems talk, but also specifically warns about falling into the trap of spirituality, right? Uh, when things get tough, you know, don't retreat into yourself. You know, just suck it up and go out to the world and kick some fucking ass, get some more allies, right? And I now realize that this is not just something that poisoned Game B 1.0, but is big in the world, that there are an awful lot of these social change people that instead of, you know, putting their life on the line for social change, like every social change person in history has ever had to do, instead they wimp out and decide to spend their time on these interior explorations instead. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't want to baby bathwater it, you know, in the sense that people's yearning for meaning and transcendence are legit, you know, sort of psychosocial nutrients we crave, you know, for balanced growth. Um, so the actual, the, the yearning for that, I, you know, just kind of want to give a little bit of elbow room to. Um, the excesses and the idea of the fact that it's more enjoyable to go back to the wishing well one more time than it is to, you know, pull up the proverbial bootstraps, yeah, you know, and go do hard things <laughs> that scare you. Um, that part. Yeah. So, so that, that bifurcation, um, is certainly problematic, yeah. you know, and, and it's, and it's sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a known issue of, of ecstatic state technology. And it kind of makes sense, you know, as you and I know, going out in the world and doing something is hard, right? And sitting back and gazing at your navel is easy. Well, at least I would say so. <laughs> And so, yeah, you know, a lot of people are just don't have courage, don't have toughness, don't really want to go out and engage the world and get their head beat in and uh, all that good stuff. Like those of us who've ever been on the street, no could happen. Yeah. Check this out. Check this out. So here's an encouraging thing, though. Right. So in the sense of like wanting to believe in people and really believing in their best. Um, and we're trying to go from I mean, the key is, can people start learning to play game B together without collapsing into game like game theory, game A, game A dynamics? Right. And, and it becomes really hard if you're not sure your baseline needs are being met. It's like we can play the highfalutin, lovey, lovey collaborative game as, as long as everything's sorted. But if I or mine have a different factional interest from the distribution of basically fungible sunlight in whatever form it's shown up in, I'm going to get needy and start collapsing down my stack. So what are the practices and protocols to keep everybody's, you know, vibe super high and coherent versus getting dropped out of the cloud? and guttering along on the bottom, maybe taking others with them. Yeah, and I agree that, that that Game B, if it's going to become something real, has to step up and actually start to build, right? Provide a Game B way of life, at least for a few pioneers. Uh, in fact, I'll have a uh, essay out in a week or so, which will have a very 
penciled, hand-wavy proposal about the road. I wouldn't call it a proposal, uh, a naming of the road forward. Because if Game B just sits around and is a talk shop about, you know, arcane spiritual values or philosophical bullshit, lots of people are going to drop out because it's not doing anything for them. It's only a very, very, very few people that are interested in that stuff. Most people are interested in how can I live a good life and provide a better life for my children and leave a society that I'd be proud to leave to the next generation. That's what most people are interested in. They're not interested in some arcane inside baseball ethical argument, right? Oh, but yeah, I think you're taking a rational utilitarian approach to what is much more uh, volatile and profoundly emotional decision. It's like connectedness, tribal affiliation, belonging are huge drivers and people will continually vote against homo economicus self-interest in favor of supporting tribal identity and affiliation. And, And that's a deep Evbio structure. And if we're attempting to articulate idealized best cases on top of that while ignoring the longer levers they, that, that those systems represent, I mean, like if we think about it, right, oxytocin is the last thing that comes online for social engineering, right? You've got, you've got dopamine and pleasure and reward, you've got endorphins, you've got all these things that make you feel good and happy. But man, oxytocin, it's not just the cuddle hormone, you know, or the trust drug. It's, it's, it's the ethnocentric tribal, you know, stomp, your, stomp the other across the river and feel great about it drug and after that right human humanitarianism is optional elective and fragile in fact there was just some research uh came out the other day that shows that high empathy also seems to be strongly correlated with stomping the other right (laughs) which makes sense wait a second high empathy yeah because empathy where it's really powerful is in the inner group right so your empathy while you may have powerful empathy in general it's more effective within the tribe and so people who have really strong empathy for their tribe are more likely to go stomp the other wow interesting how about that and it's not the first such paper i'll find a copy of it and uh, we'll put it up on the website for this uh, for this episode nice but I, you know i think you're absolutely right you know homo economicus obviously has been disproved by anybody who's looked at uh, human behavior even slightly on the other hand it does have to deliver the goods uh, sooner or later and has to be able to provide a way to make a living for people that's honorable ethical and resonates at the tribal level so it can't just all be symbols and talk yeah, you gotta you gotta move some matter from time to time. Yeah, I mean, again, we have food, energy, education for the kids, shelter from the storm. You know, these things need to start being talked about in the game B world, or you're gonna j- just get yourself a more and more concentrated community of pinheads. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I get baffled by any excess philosophizing about any kind of culture design because nothing. I mean, talk about battle plans not surviving first contact. You know, culture architecture never gets out of the first meeting. So, it, you know, it's bricklaying ahead of the thing, and and it's a sense of you know, unless or until you found ways to explicitly navigate currency taxation, resistance of armed enforcement of said nation state, you know, with, with declared sovereignty, um, unless we've solved for those things explicitly, cleanly, and durably, then everything else just feels like angels on pins. Yep. And you can't jump up a cliff. You can't solve all those things simultaneously, except in the case of collapse. But until collapse, it makes much more sense to build piece parts, try them out. It's why people are rooting for the end, because they're like, this is just an utter clusterfuck. I've been staring at this for half my career. I think we better just blow it all up and start again like a giant Etch-A-Sketch, you know, from heaven. 
And and that's the that's the scary thing because the moment that everybody starts, you know, must, that tipping point, and we're seeing it with that the rescinding of the of the commitment to the infinite game, yeah, right, and and the reduction, you know, tribalist, populist, win lose, finite games are being are back on the table and strongly lobbied for. Yeah, I got to say, uh, if anyone who understands their history knows that the the pain from a true collapse is unbelievable, and yes, the current world sucks. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It does not suck so bad that we really wanted to drop five levels of civilization in you know three years and watch you know 250 million people in the United States alone die. You know, what actually would be the best case would be that give us some time to build many of the peace parts and even done some proto game B communities to demonstrate what works from the social side. And some of it won't work. Uh, and then having a soft collapse, like a financial collapse, you know, financial collapse, not that big a deal. Look at, you know, like the Soviet Union had, it was essentially a financial and regime collapse. Nobody died. You know, life sucked for a few years. Unfortunately, they got caught by a bad attractor that was worse. No, it wasn't worse than the one they were in, but it wasn't as good as it could have been by any means. They fell into the neo-fascist attractor rather than into one of the better attractors. Well, exactly. But that, that's also a case study, right? I mean, those who still control the engines of war, like Milosevic, in Serbia, you know, like if, if he had the military, therefore he was he was he was able to project force, you know. So, like as things as things unspool, you realize that those things are going to be have to be dealt with on basically feudal level dynamics. If things fall, depends how far they fall, right? Well, that, yeah, and, and and I think as things fell apart, you know, nobody paid much attention. And then, yeah, that's the problem with anarchy, right? I read these uh, arguments for anarchy. Dude, come on. Let's look at history. We know how anarchy really goes. First, it goes to criminal gangs, then warlords, and then a master lord, warlord crowns himself king. Yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah, it's human, human history is fascinating. And, and the modes and models that we're, we've all grown up with and taken as table stakes and seen regurgitated in our, in our kids' history books is, is a fleeting fiction. You know, which we just a temporary wobbly mirage on the, you know, arc of human culture and civilization development. We're freaks. And we took it as table stakes. Yep. You know, you know, since uh, 1694, basically. Right. Let's switch back here now. Use the last bit of our time so we can really get into your expertise. You know, you know about a lot of what's going on in pharmacology, technology, neurobiology, etc. What do you see that's out there either proven or advanced in the lab and at the R&D level that might help make this conversion to a better world happen faster and better. Yeah, well, I think you basically just put them all together and build badass star chambers to like boot up, you know, like next level humans. You know, you just combine all integrative trauma release therapies, you uh, make use of schedule three, four uh, compounds, and you integrate light, sound, music, uh, massage, like like an automated uh, Japanese massage chair, gravity blankets for vagal nerve tone, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, you basically dial people through a neurophysiologically programmed synchronized consumption of prescription pharmaceuticals that deliver a, you know, and, and a breathing protocol on the whole bit that deliver a peak energetic pulse and release with whatever interior psychological content shows up for that person. They get to make sense of it themselves. That's their own data set. And you use it to defrag nervous systems and then boot up post-conventional thinking uh, in basically, uh, particularly theta, gamma, and uh, waking delta uh, EEG signatures. 
So you basically just steer the self over to that place, make sense, like process at, at high velocity, um, information, lateral connections, patterns, meaning making um, into relationships, and then come back down with a kernel or a crystal of, you know, a thesis in, you know, information research branches and arms that you can then follow up on and instantiate in 3D. So that to me seems like a, a, a sort of necessary techno adaptive uh, innovation. It sounds like there's a control system there too, though. You need to make sure that you use the state correctly and don't wallow in it. No, don't burn yourself out, etc. Oh yeah, you, know, you, you have you have periodization and, and certain protocols, almost like diving and, and the rules for the bends and ascending and that kind of thing. So you absolutely uh, have that on rails. And and then the other part is is, is also to hundred percent acknowledge that like the, those reformatting technology psychotechnologies, right? Are um, pretty much uh, with few variations uh, identical for basically you know twenty first century Western alchemy or you know spook black budget brainwashing yeah or it's it's just that the latter is design, intended to uh, dissolve sovereignty and the former is intended to galvanize it how far along is the experimentation with this multi-part approach that you've talked about are you do you know anyone that's actually doing this uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a there's a whole lot of experimentation and innovation going on. Um, much of it in the, um, I would I suppose the kind of EDM transformational festival scene because there's a real progression of light, sound, interactivity, biometrics, um, that kind of thing. So sort of interactive, experiential, biometrically uh, cued or indexed experiments, pieces of performance art, uh, inter interactive exhibits, training spaces, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating field. And what's really interesting is that you can absolutely program a peak state of, you know, whatever, uh, five minutes to 15 minutes, um, dial it up, dial it down, uh, send people out of the door on a, on a feather, and they can use it as a post-conventional metacognitive um, substitute for bodywork or a float tank or, you know, a spa day. Yeah, let's get a little bit more practical. You know, I try to be a practical guy. If we're trying to build game B, mm -hmm. how, how might, might we use that? Well, because all the leaders are going to be incorporating micro PTSD across their uh, across their days and need places to skillfully and efficiently defrag their hard drives, uh, reset their nervous systems, and process and integrate um, information. Because uh, as I said, in that the richness level of those states tend to be um, high data bandwidth. So it's it's combinatory uh, recovery, like active recovery, and also strategic cogitating. Again, let me get even more practical. Let's say there's the first proto-Game B group of 200 people that go out and decide to build a Game B village somewhere. Would it be your thought that they should build or take with them the kernel of these capabilities to have that within their civilization as an important part of how they build out proto-Game B 1.0? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, sure, of course, it doesn't have to be this, it could be any, any sort of integrated, dedicated, full spectrum life practice or set of practices that anybody else has found and sorted and learned and pursued in their life. It's just absent that and with a little bit of tech assist and a little bit of fun instructional design, you can also just port this one in. But I mean, it includes basically what we need, I think, these days and more soon is going to be highly, highly coherent, highly, highly resilient, high integrity 
leaders who are completely surrendered to mission and and selfless service um, and to playing by the 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 highest aspirational rules of the game and self-policing when we don't and that ran, and that requires that you know that doesn't lend itself to burnout reactivity um re-trigger trauma etc cetera, etc cetera. so healing and rejuvenation are are critical to then do all the other hard 3d shit you're discussing so all i'm talking about is like what's the psychosocial uh software to map to the techno-economic stuff that you're thinking about that's what I'm trying to get at. Should this be cooked in essentially to the, you know, the initial boot program? And it sounds like there's a good argument that it would help the boot program be more successful. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, utopian culture is tricky because then you almost always end up back to teach the children, right? You're like, oh, it's so hard. Once adults are baked, they have these, all these ha- bad habits. We don't want them anymore. And then eventually we start fantasizing about, well, what we really need to do is get the kids first. Then it'll be all right. All right. And if you do that, then you're like, it's actually, you get a double-edged sword because in, unless you're truly porting your kids out of all mainstream society, then the better you do it, raise them in game B or any other utopian experiment or experience, the worse they fit. So you are wounding the children you love the most by, by making them misfits, right, on, you know, on the island of toys. Like, and, and, and that is a brutal thing. Or you're like, we're leaving it behind. We're never looking back, so it won't matter. And then you've gone full bore prepper. So, you know, that's a lot to impart or inflict on a child. Some come out amazingly out of super alternative lives. And then others make a transition that's a little bumpier. Yeah, I think an interesting datum is that the Israeli kibbutz, which is one of the more successful alternative micro-civilizations, only about 2% of the kids stay. It's amazing. But yet, yet they do very well in the world. Yeah. You know, it's on, on that note about kids staying, um, have you seen that documentary, The Devil's Playground, about the Amish? And the and, and the and the rumspringer. Oh no, that's uh... oh my god, it's so good. So so it's the whole story of a pre- present day Amish uh, community in Pennsylvania, and their rumspringer, which is their rite of adolescent passage, which I think when they turn sixteen or maybe eighteen, then it's like wheels off. They're completely officially out of fucks. They get to do anything they want. They hook up generators. They run Nintendos and Playstations. They have parties in the farm fields. Like they had pictures of like girls in bonnets all passed out on Chevy Novas with the door open at sunrise. Like mayhem. They move down to Florida. They start dealing methamphetamine. They get apartments. They go absolutely stock raving batshit. And by the end of the movie, you're just crestfallen. You're like, oh my God, like that was the, the city on the hill, the last best hope for the agrarian Jeffersonian, you know, contemplative sort of, you know, like quiet and non-assertive um, piety that we just love in this country, right? And you're like, it's over. It's over. There's no saving the, the youth of tomorrow. And then the credits roll. And the credits, it's like, hey, um, you know, what did it say? It said 93% or 97% of teenagers in this era are coming back and then formally rejoining the church. So they can get their yayas out, but when they come back, then you're all the way in. And it's the highest percentage in the last 300 years is right now, which is the absolute kicker to the whole movie in the credits. I love it. I love it. In fact, I, I posted something on, I don't know where it was. I must have been on Twitter that, you know, uh, there must be something in the Mennonites and Amish that's worth game B looking into. And and this sounds like a perfectly good example, you know, a way to make sure that you don't dead end your kids into some weird cult, make it clear from the beginning that they have the right to opt out. And in fact, are essentially kicked out temporarily and have to opt back in. 
It's a good reducing valve. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to keep the thing from becoming a cult because that's, you know, the spiritual bypass thingy that we talked about. It's one known bad attractor for the alternative committee. The other one's cults, right? Every goddamn time you find these uh, dime store cult leaders, right? And got to make it my job to, you know, move them down the road every time they show their ugly faces. <laughs> You are a hoot, Jim. Um, yeah, so so that is that is absolutely a a tendency of any time you get peak states and some form of deep healing, you know, and or catharsis, then you get Celtic tendencies, and that feels to be at the lo- way down the stack at like tribal primate level um, of identifying the silverback of, of, out of deference. It, you know, pretty much the antithesis of your big man caveman book that you were describing, right? Um, there is the notion of the hierophant, right? That that is the minister of the sacred, and it does feel that when anybody is up front and by hook or by crook manages to close that circuit and boot folks up into either a pre-conventional or a post-conventional sense of the collective, right? Either erosion and loss of self, right, or you know deepening, connecting, and amplifying of self. It depends. But anytime you do either of those, you get all the other tribal monkeys in the circuit to imprint on that hierophant like little ducklings. They're like, that is the source of it all. And then how many of those folks, because they could be idiot savants, they can be hucksters and shysters, they can, they can, they can be quick studies, they can be you know, unnaturals, but how many of them give it all back you know, it's a little bit like winning the lottery. Like if anybody wins the lottery, like do they rat, do they say, hey man there, but for the grace of God, it, it, you know, let it pass through my life. Let me distribute it to everybody. I don't, I'm, I was fine yesterday. I won the lottery today. Do I need to keep any of it? You know, and so those gurus with feet of clay, it feels like they probably hold on to some of the light that's actually the, you know, the, the metabolic output of the collective. And in doing so, right, it corrupts them slowly over time, but inevitably. Or maybe not so slowly. Some of them, as you say, are, you know, probably even if they weren't into it explicitly as con men, they quickly fall into it, right? But, but see, that's the thing. I, I, I think that that is a category for sure at the basest, least discerning level, like, like cut rate, you know, uh, megachurch ministers, you know. But the reality is, is that the more interesting cases are ones of people who had absolutely absolute Jews. Otherwise, they, they couldn't have possibly done what they did or gathered the people they gathered, right? So the question is, is how do you get these basically, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that old Tolkien thing of, you know, no dark, you know, or, or every dark wizard started out in the pursuit of knowledge. That is true. Yep. And I would put it in the category of another immune system that Game B has to build for itself. You know, we have to have an immune system against spiritual bypass. We have to have an immune system about trapping our children in a, you know, an impossible situation from which they can't get out and can't move forward. And we have to have an immune system against the gurus, quacks and swamis, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But of course, I mean, that's the trick, right? I mean, that's baked into the book of Revelations and the Antichrist is going to walk like a Christ and he's going to talk like a Christ, but he's going to be the Antichrist, right? So we always have the ability to vilify the other in the name of, you know, upholding our self-described standards of purity. You know, so like, so that's the trick. I mean, A, I, don't, I think even just naming something like Game B is presumptive. It's like, it's like we're going to keep evolving culture and it's happening in real time, whether we're discussing it on a podcast or whether it's just happening 
all around us in a million tiny ways. Folks are trying to navigate the wreckage of all this, and there's not going to be another flag planted on a city on a hill that has militarization, tax resources, protection, sovereign land, et cetera, et cetera. So we're integrating into existing systems, and isolationism is probably has never been less possible than it is right now. That's a very good point. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. This has been a remarkably interesting freewheeling conversation, a little different (laughs) than I intended, but I think people are going to love it. So, uh, you know, thanks a lot, Jamie. And we will put links up to your book and your website on the episode page, and it'll be out in a couple of weeks. So awesome, man. Thank you so much. That was a, that was a blast to chat with you. And thank you so much for the, uh, you know, thorough preparation and, and, and great questions. Loved it. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.